We are in Deuteronomy 12, and, and I want to start today with, with sort of the end game in mind, if you will. We're going to start with the, with the application, and I'll get back to the application, but I want, I want to read something. I want to read a passage. It's clear in the Bible we're called to be holy. And we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the purpose of the law, the intent of the law was to reveal the character of God, was to reveal that we don't measure up, and it was to reveal an expectation for a Savior, one who would measure up. We, we talked about the, the, the need for righteousness. The, the thing that we don't have that we need is righteousness. God demands righteousness. And that's exactly what the gospel brings us. And what we'll see today is that God is God. He is sovereign. He gets to choose however He wants to be worshipped. He gets to make that call. We don't get to make that call. We have to worship Him the way that He demands that He is to be worshipped. It's not up to us. And there's a reason behind that. And, and we're going to look at chapters 12 through 14 today. I, I, I Partially for my own good, because I don't, I, I don't want to spend a whole, a whole Sunday in chapter 14 talking about why there's a split in the hoof of an animal and why there's not a split in a hoof in another animal and why the pig doesn't qualify. And I, I'm going to group up some chapters together because... Moses is teaching, what he is teaching here is about worship. And the worship of our God is so important. And it's so easily entangled in so many other things. We're so easy to worship it however we want. Moses spends chapter after chapter after chapter teaching his people what it means to worship. What it looks like to worship. In many ways, you could take the Ten Commandments and you could lay, you could lay it over chapters 12 through 26 of Deuteronomy, and Moses is teaching them what the Ten Commandments look like on a very, very practical basis. And the point is this, because every single moment of every single day of our lives as followers of Christ, we are to be worshipers. Our, our existence, our existence is to declare the greatness of our God. We don't exist for our own goal. We don't exist for he doesn't we don't exist for our own deal and God doesn't exist for us. Our de, our purpose, responsibility is to declare the greatness of our God and that's what Moses is saying here through the Lord or the Lord is saying through Moses. I'm God. You're my people. I get to determine how you live. Why? Because it's all about me. And in 1 Peter Two nine. Before we start thinking, well, that was Old Testament, Chris. You, you, there's a difference in this and that. Listen to what he says in in First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So that, why do you exist? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Clay, we just sang about that. And here's the greatness of God. Clay, I, I just, I, I'm constantly working on these sermons, and, and I, I was working on this yesterday afternoon. Clay had no idea that I was talking about 1 Peter 2.9. But we are called out of darkness into marvelous light. Listen, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to do what? To abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent 
among the Gentiles. Why? So that in the things in which they slandered you as evildoers, they may, be, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observed them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There is a strong connection. That's why we're in Deuteronomy, to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything that we are called to do as believers, it's because of what God has done. We are a, rose, we are a chosen people. We're, we're, we're royalty as followers of Christ. We're believer priests as followers of Christ. We're, we're a holy people. 1 Peter 1, he says, Be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting De Leviticus 11.44 there. It's not changed. God demands holiness from His people. And the link between the old and the new is this. The link is separation from the world. The link is holiness. The link is we are set apart, just like Israel was chosen out of every nation. You and I who are followers, believers in Jesus Christ, we've been chosen. That, that may make some of us uncomfortable, talking about God's sovereignty and election and all this other stuff. You can't get around it. We've been chosen. Out of, out of all the peoples God could have chose, He chose you and He chose me if you're a follower. And guess what? If you're not following Jesus Christ today, He's made it open. Whoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I know, I, I know who God has chosen in this way. I share the gospel. Some respond, some don't. The chosen respond. The non-chosen, they don't respond. No one comes to the Father unless what? The Father draws them. Period. We're chosen. And as such, we exist just like Israel existed to declare that we have been chosen by an excellent God, an awesome God, a unique God. What we see today in Deuteronomy chapters uh, 12 through 14, it has everything to do with being holy, with being set apart, with being declaring the excellencies of God. It has to do with, with being a chosen people, a set apart people, of being, being loved by a very unique God. He's saying, you cannot worship me, you cannot live the way that everyone else lives as my people. Why? Because you're here to proclaim the excellencies of our God. There ought to be a difference. What he's saying is there ought to be a difference between how a believer and a non-believer lives. And the difference is the character of God in you. It's holiness. It's separation. It's being set apart. And what God is doing here in setting forth these laws and regulations, He's protecting His people for that purpose. No, no less than, than you as a mom or dad might fence in your backyard. You do that to protect your children. God's protecting His people. He's saying, look, here, here's how it's going to work. But not only that, God is doing for them the very thing that He is commanding from them. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. God is teaching them how to do that here. Please hear that. He's helping Israel do what God has called them to do. To love God with all their heart. And you can see here clearly over and over, whether it's 1 Peter 2 or here, we are to be different. Believers, followers of Christ are to be different. It's not a differentness for different for difference sake. It's a different. It's a difference because of our God's sake, because He's unique, and we are to reflect that character. And that's essentially what God is saying here 
in these chapters about himself and it's about his people. They belong to him. He was sovereign. Therefore, he could choose however he wanted to choose in the ways that they were to worship him. That was his call. He's God. He gets to choose how he is to be worshipped. And our, our responsibility is to follow and obey. But what he's teaching them, again, hear this, is to love him. He's teaching them what it means to love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's teaching them what it means to have no other gods before him. He's teaching them about how set apart and how awesome and holy he is in relation to everything else. And, and there's but one central point here in, in these chapters 12, 13, and 14 that we're going to look at, and it's this. Israel's God was completely unique. He was totally unique from all other false gods. All the other gods of the world, totally unique. And as such, his people were to worship him in ways that were different from the world that reflected that uniqueness. He's unique. He's set apart. He's different. He's greater than all the other so-called gods. And what Moses puts forth here. He is the teaching of that, but he does it through a study and contrast. He is teaching them how great God is by contrasting their worship with the worship of the world. Keep that in mind when you see these. The, the point in some of this is simply to say, why do it that way? Because it's different from the world. The purpose is just simply to show that you are different, to worship God in a different way, to be set apart. I'm not sure he's offended by the, cat, by the animal without the split in the hoof or not. The point is, don't be like the world. We'll learn later on, he created all the animals. All the animals are clean. He's simply saying, be different in how you worship me. Why? Because I'm unique. Israel served the one true God. And he was, he was unique. He was totally set apart from all the false gods. And he demanded he be worshipped in that same way. And, and again, everything that we read here points back to the first three commandments, especially the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That word before, it literally means in my face. I don't want no other gods, no other gods in my face. I, I, I will not stand for any god to be in, in your life competing for your affection for me. God's literally saying, there are no other gods that you can have that sit in the same category as me. I am in a category all to myself. And see, we understand that principle in this. Suppose I told Karen, you, hey, of all the girls, of all the girls I know and love, you're number one. Would that bless her? You know what Karen wants to know as my wife? I want to know who number two is. I want to know who number two is. And I want to know how far away one and two are. Who's my competition? No, you, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that twice to your wife anyway. <laughs> You'd say, honey, you're number one and there is no number two. If you were smart. See, that's what God is saying. There is no number two. I'm in a category all to myself. It's not God, I love you the most and then I love dot, 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 dot. No, no, no. You love me the most in the discussion. You love me all in, in discussion. He, he is alone in a category, a unique category all to himself. He is teaching them 
and he is teaching us how to love him as he deserves to be loved. Please hear me. He's not some needy God that's just worried about all these other gods competing. He is that great that he can demand that we love him like this. And it's good for us because to waste our time with other things, it's foolish. Look, look at 12, and we're just going to pick some verses through 12 through 14 and, and uh, to save time, but to get the point. Look at 12, 1 through 3. These are the statutes and the judgments that you are to be careful to observe in the land which, is the, which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall possess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their ashram with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. You shall... and I mean... He goes on and on. It goes back to the same underlying truth to the whole law that we are to love the Lord God with all our heart, with all our soul, with our mind, and with all our strength. What's he saying? You shall have no other gods before me. I'm about to give you this land. I don't want there to be a bunch of gods competing for my attention. Utterly destroy them. Utterly destroy them. That's what the first commandment was given to them. Even in their own um, creed in Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one. There's no other like Him. And He's saying, if you want to follow that, this is how utterly awesome I am. You are destroy every inkling of a false God in your midst. Destroy them all. And what we see here, Moses is putting forth the man's number one priority. It's to worship God. Mine and yours, number one priority is to worship God. We are to be worshipers of the one true God. Everything about our life is about worship. And, and chapter 12, verse 4 gives the key to this. Listen, you shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. He's saying, do not come to me. Do not try to come to me like you come to every other God in your life. Do not try to come to me and treat me like the world treats their gods. Do not act like that towards me. As the people of God, he's saying, you will worship me the way that I tell you to worship, and you will not imitate the practices of the world. I don't care how the world worships their gods. You're going to worship me the way that I tell you. God is unique, and he, and he not only is worthy of that, he demands that. And he can demand that because he's sovereign. And the most important activity of the people of God is the worship of God. Because everything about our lives is meant to be an overflow of worship. Whether you're students, whether you're sitting in class taking a test, whether you're in recreation, whether it's the girl that you're dating, whether it's the friends you keep, men, women, whether you're at work, whether you're at free time, whether you're at recreation, whether it's the way you treat your wife, whether it's the way you treat your husband, everything about our lives is meant to be worship. It's done out of the greatness of our God. And what he's saying is this, we worship what we love the most. The thing that you love the most will be that which you worship. And, and I think God in his greatness is, spends so much time on this. The reason he does that is this, I think we would all agree that we struggle to fully understand what that means, to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. To love God with everything about our being. I think if we were honest, that's a struggle. It's a struggle. 
And, and, and that's why when we come to texts like this and God says, utterly obliterate everything. When we come to chapter 13 and he says, if you have a husband or a wife that tries to lead you away from the Lord, take them out. Because we struggle to understand, number one, how awesome God is, how set apart He is. We have no concept of holiness because we don't have a picture of it here on earth. And we struggle with what it means to truly love the Lord God with all our heart. We, if we're honest, we don't see the big deal with having multiple gods. As long as we can rank God number one, two, three, it's okay. And God's saying it's not okay. And we'll see why in a minute. I mean, we come to this at killing off everybody, utterly destroying everything. Is that a little overkill, God? He says it is not. And not only do we not know how to love God, not, not only have we not given thought to what the greatest commandment in our, in our time, the greatest commandment means day to day, not only that, we haven't obeyed it. We're okay with having other gods. We're okay with having competing gods. And that's what God is trying to say. He says, I created you. You're sinners. You fool around with those other gods. They're going to rob you of joy. They're going to rob of affection, of time, of all of that. And that is why texts like this are so important. Because not only is loving our God our highest priority, we don't really understand what that means. And we have no idea what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. No idea. And, and so Moses employs a technique of, of contrast to try to show them what it means on a day-to-day basis. And, and we're going to look at Israel and, and apply this to our lives and hopefully walk out of here with a picture, just like Clay said, uh, similar to what Isaiah would say, when you see the holiness of God, you'd say, I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. I'm amazed that he would love me at all, never mind the fact that he loves me the way he loves me. And that we would aggressively seek to obliterate any false gods in our lives, anything that is, that is competing for affections for our God, that we would seek to rid our lives of those. So let's look at the contrast here. How does, how does Moses teach us what it means to love the Lord with all our heart? How does Moses teach us about worship? The first contrast he employs is this. In contrast to the many places that the world worshipped, Israel would have one place to worship. One place. Why one place? Because God is one, and the world had many, many, many places, and God says, I'm going to give you one place to worship. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to choose that place. I'm not going to leave it up to you. You're not going to get to pick and choose it. You're not going to do any of that. I will choose the place. You see in verse 2, you shall utterly destroy all the places that the world worships. They worshiped wherever. It was, it was just wherever. They had many altars, many gods. And he says, you know what, Israel? You're going to have one altar because you have one God. And you're going to worship in one place, and it's going to be the place that I choose. You, you see that in verse 5. But you, you shall not act like the world, act like this toward the Lord your God, but you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose. One place. You see it in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place the Lord chooses, there you'll offer your offerings. It's about contrast. 
It's, it, it, the emphasis, again, it wasn't so much on the place, it was on the fact that God chose the place. It was on the fact that God got to dictate where and how they worship. He's sovereign. And the tabernacle would become the place where Israel worshipped as they traveled. They, they, the, the tabernacle would move there. Eventually it would be the temple. God said there's going to be one place that you worship me. Why? Because the areas around you have all these different places. I'm going to, you're going to be different. You're going to be different. And it signified that in, a, in contrast to the many, 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 many gods that the world had, Israel had one God, no other rivals. And he was to be worshipped this way at this place. He was unique. He was set apart. So that was the first contrast. In contrast to the many, many, many places, he says, you're going to have one place. You're going to worship me in one place. Not, not only that, the second tr- contrast he shows is this. The world sacrificed whatever they wanted to their gods. Israel, in contrast, would have specific items that could be sacrificed to the one true God. Very specific items. He, he, he's in, in chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, he talks about that. In verse 6, there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution in hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings. There you and all your household shall eat it before the Lord your God and rejoice. He goes on there in, in verses, 12 and through, uh, verses 12 through 14, he does that. But also, that's really what comes into play in chapter 14. God is just saying, hey, you're going to worship the way, that I de- the way that I design it. Why this animal? Why not animal? Because I said so. You're going to be different. I mean, I, I've, I've told you before, my wife kids me all the time. I, I've said it. She, she loves verse 21. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How dare you do such a thing? Why? Here's the why. Because pagans did that. Simple, simply put. The world did that. And God is saying, when you worship me, I want you to worship me in a way that is so different from the world, they'll notice a distinction. Don't do the way the world, don't worship the way the world worships. He, he says, you're set apart, you're holy, you're different. It's as simple as that. Don't do it. Israel's worship was to be exclusively towards God. It was to be unique. They were to worship Him and offer exclusively what He determined. And God knew, if if I leave it up to you, you're going to imitate, you're going to invent your own religious systems, and you're going to imitate the ways of the world. And and you see a hint of that. Go down to verse 8 of chapter 12. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Fast forward a few, gener- a few generations to Judges 17 and 18, and that is exactly what you see. Everyone did what was ever right in their own eyes. Hey, whatever suited you, they did it. And God is trying to prevent that from happening. It's already happening. He's saying, don't do that. And God is trying to protect His people. It's for their good. It's for their loyalty. Why? Because they're going to go. They will, they will wonder. And the point here, God is protecting them, their complete and total, total dedication to the Lord. That's what He's protecting. I'm showing you what it means to love me with all your heart, having nothing left for anyone else. Why? Because He's worthy. And the laws here that we see were designed to help them subject every area of their life to the Lord, every area of the life. 
Again, even family members and friends could not detract from their devotion to the Lord. And, and, and before we think, well, that was harsh, and, and, and that's Old Testament, and, you know, God, that was law, and, and God did that stuff again. Look, look with me at Luke, in Luke chapter 14. Again, Jesus lived under the law, but he's giving a, the test of discipleship here. And look what he says, a true disciple. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What's he saying? In relationship to how much you love your wife and kids, you better love me more. He's not saying hate. He's saying in comparison to how strongly you love the Lord, it looks like hate. He's saying discipleship will be costly. Later on in that, that chapter, he says, hey, you count the cost. Before you follow me, count the cost, because it's going to be costly. And the point here is the Lord will not back down on what it costs to worship Him. He will not back down on the worship and the devotion of His people. We are to love the Lord more than we do anything else. Period. Why? Because He's set apart. So what is he doing there is he's saying, look, this is how you'll worship me. In contrast to the world, they offer everything to trees and to this and to that and to that. He says, no, you worship me one way and with specific items, specific items. The third contrast is this. In contrast to the world who worship for what they could get, Israel's God is to be worshiped for who he is. See, the world worshipped for what they could get. They, would, they had these fertility gods, and they had all these, these, um, they, they had these trees that symbolized fertility, and they had all these, all these different gods, and they would go to the individual gods to get what they wanted. It was a very pragmatic worship. They were constantly trying to twist the, twist the arms of their gods. Just to why? To get certain things. Hey, if you wanted this, you went to that God. If you wanted this, you go to that God. If you wanted this, you go to this God. It was all about getting what they wanted. Listen to me. God is telling Israel and God is telling us, I'm the reward. God is the reward. And that's how Israel's worship was different. See, God invited Israel into a relationship. A relationship. And He loved them. And he provided for them. He says, you don't, you don't come to me, Israel, to get. You've already gotten the best thing that could be offered, and that's me. God is the reward of our worship. He, he is the reward. That's why you see in, in, in Job 1, verse 9, Satan cannot, Satan's idea of worship was this. God, you have bought Satan's worship, of course. I mean, of Job's worship. You, you've bought it. Look at all the guy has. You wound him, he'll curse you to your face, God. So what did God do? He allowed Satan to wound him. And wound him deeply. See, Job's not about suffering. Job is about worship. And the question is asked in verse 9, Does Job worship you for nothing? The answer at the end of the book is this, Yes, Job will worship God for nothing. Why? Because God is the reward. I don't worship God for things. We don't worship God for stuff. We worship God because He's God and He is the reward. He's the reward. 
He, is, he alone is worthy of our worship. Even in the midst of adversity, He's still worthy. And that's the whole point. Many of the Psalms themselves are written by men in, who were in deep despair, deep struggles. And yet, what is the one thing that persists? Their worship of God. And God is so worthy, He is so awesome, that His people will worship Him even when times are bad. And the reality is this, that most of the greatest progress of Christianity, most of the greatest progress in your life and my life, have not been in times of ease, it comes in times of struggle. That's when you grow relationally with the Lord, and it shows the world around you. See, the world worships when times are great. They'll worship because they worship for stuff. See, we worship for Him because He is worthy. And, and you look at Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 4. It's very interesting, even considering what we saw in Deuteronomy 8. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. Listen, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. See, just because somebody says something and it comes true doesn't mean you're to follow it. We know from 2 Corinthians that Satan masquerades as an angel of light looking to lead people away. He doesn't come with a little red pitchfork and horns and all obvious. He comes looking like an angel of light. And, and there, his goal is to deceive you. It is to, to, to draw you away from singular devotion to the Lord. And, and God says, I'll let, I'll let some of that stuff happen because I'm going to show you what's in your heart. That's exactly what we saw in chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, testing you to show you and me what's in our heart. Do we worship God for stuff or do we worship God for Him? Is the stuff the reward? Is the stuff is what we're after? Or is He what we're after? And Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can understand them? Sometimes we don't know our own hearts. And so God, in His great grace, says, I'm going to show you what's in your heart. I'm going to show you. And that's when he goes on to say, in verse 4, You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments. Listen to His voice and serve Him. Cling to Him. He goes on to say, Anyone who tries to draw you away from singular devotion... To God, he says, put him to death. Put him to death. Why? Because it's about loyalty. Loyalty. It's about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nothing else, nothing left for anything else. And again, we struggle with that. Admittedly, we struggle with that. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Moses is saying there's none like him. In, in Romans 11, verses 33 through 36, look at what Paul says. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back again? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul said, I don't understand it. I don't get it, all of it, but I know this. You're worthy. And your awesomeness is beyond comprehension. And I will follow you and I will obey you and I will make much of you even when I don't know what you're doing and even when I don't understand it. 
I'll follow you. Why? Because you're the reward, God. The relationship is the reward. The adoption is the reward. It's the reward. And, and God is saying, no, my people are going to worship me because of who I am, not what I do. They're going to worship me. The world is only interested in blessing. Followers of Christ and, and, and Israel at that day were interested in a relationship. It was a relationship. It's being wedded to the one true God. It was a relationship. He is the blessing. He's the blessing. And that was the contrast. The, the fourth contrast is this. In contrast to the world's worship that tries to pull people away from the one true God, God invited Israel into a covenant relationship with Him. And, and we hinted at that in, in, the, in the last contrast we just saw. But Israel's tendency was to wander away, and so is ours. And God is protecting them. Look at 12, chapter 12, verse 31. He, he knows that their tendency is to be ensnared. He, he starts in verse 29 warning that. He says, dispossess them, get away. Beware that you're not ensnared to follow them. After they are destroyed before you, that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? That I may do likewise. That's the tendency. You keep them around, you're going to follow them. He says, you shall not behave, verse 31, toward the Lord your God, this, like this, toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For though they, eat, for though they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. They, to appease their God, they would go so far as burning their own children. And, and before you think, well, that's, that's ludicrous, Chris. That, that never happened. That's, that's, that's totally outlandish. I'm certain that's what Israel thought. But if you flip over to 2 Kings chapter 17, that's exactly what Israel did. Go, go with me to 2 Kings 17. Here's the danger of fooling around with sin, of playing around with sin, of, of entertaining sin. They, verse 16 of chapter 17, 2 Kings, They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enhancements and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking them. Play around with sin long enough and you're going to find yourself doing things that you never imagined you would have done. And that's exactly why God is protecting them. Play around with it. Fool around with it. Entertain it. Treat, treat the Lord as common. And I promise you, you'll find yourself doing what you, what you never would have imagined you'd do. And the point is this. God knows we are, a curious, we are a curious people. We love to check things out. We love to, we love to look into things. We love to dabble. Love to play around, again, because we don't understand what it means to love the Lord with all our hearts. And we don't see it as a big deal. And God's saying, it is a big deal. Maybe and it's a big deal today, and it's going to be a real big deal when you're sacrificing your children. And Romans 16, 19 says this, Hey, I want my people to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. You know what he's telling them? You ought to be ignorant about some things. There ought to be things in this world that you don't know anything about. And we as Christians, we want to know everything there is about everything. And Satan is sitting there saying, oh yeah, 
Let me pique their interest. Let me get them curious. Get them to dabble in it. He's saying, no, you ought to be ignorant about it. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, flee immorality. Why? Because you'll fall. Play around with immorality long enough, you're going to fall. Later on, he says, flee, idol flee from idolatry in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Why? Because you're going to worship other gods. Play around with it, you will worship other gods. Psalm 106, verses 36 through 34 says, tells us exactly, very clearly, God in His grace is saying, listen, this is Satan's M.O., Psalm 106, verses 34 through 36. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. And look what happened. But they mingled with the nations and they learned their practices and they served their idols, which became a snare to them. You see what happens when they didn't utterly destroy them? When they didn't completely obey? What happened? They began to be like them. You dabble, you're going to fall. I promise you it's going to happen. Satan's whole desire, he can't steal your salvation, but he will destroy the joy of your salvation. You'll fall. And Satan's goal is to draw us away from the one true God and to serve other gods. And that's why God is saying, utterly get rid of the idols. Don't play around with them. To, to, To have other gods, and here's why this is a big deal. We don't get this. But listen, to have other gods is to forsake the one true God. You don't get to worship all of them. Jesus himself said, you're either for me or you're against me. It's not, oh, I'll worship him and others. He says, no, you start worshiping these others, you have forsaken me. You've forsaken me. Joshua 24, 15 and 16 says the same thing. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice he didn't say, choose, choose a variety. Serve him amongst others. No, he didn't say that. He said, make a choice. To, to, not only that, to have other gods is an evidence of one's lack of faith in the one true God. See, that's why they had myriads of gods. Because this God wasn't sufficient, so they had to have this God for this. And they weren't sufficient, so they had to have this God for this. And they weren't sufficient, so they had to have this God for this. No, we serve one true God who is sufficient in every area of our life, no matter what it is. And that's what God is saying. You don't need these other gods. I'm sovereign. I'm omnipotent. I'm all-powerful. I'm all pre- Okay, so you need something done. There's nothing too difficult for me. No matter where you are, God says, I'm there. I'm omnipresent. No matter what you're dealing with, guess what? You're not alone. I'm omniscient. I know it. You don't need all these other gods. You've got me. And notice here, it's interesting. I think it's significant that God forbade the worship of other gods and not another god. You see, you won't stop at just one. You will have multiple idols. Again, they had idols for everything. Everything. There's there's false religions today that have millions and millions of gods. One for everything they need. And sin is that seductive. It is that destructive. And and God is saying, forsake the other gods. Because when you, when you serve other gods, you know what you're telling the one true God? That He is insufficient and that He's not trustworthy. 
That's what you're saying. There's no need to go to another God when we have the one true God. But when we do that, you know what you're saying is, God, you're insufficient. I need somebody else. And God, I don't trust you for that, so I'm going to go over here and I'm going to try to find it my way or through this other means. And God is teaching us and Israel to trust God for every area of their life. Every area of their life. And, and, and unfortunately, the alternative is to forsake Him and to pursue other gods. And again, why would that happen? Why? Because if they left those things around them, they would constantly be battering and in their face, and He's saying, utterly destroy them. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14, he says, What fellowship do light and darkness? A, a, a believer and a non-believer have no business being yoked because they're going to draw you away. Everywhere in their culture there are false gods, and he's saying, Utterly destroy them or you're going to be drawn into it. And why? Because I desire purity. I demand more than desire. demand purity and holiness for my people, purity and holiness. The word purge used eight times here and other places in De Deuteronomy. Purge, get rid of. Later on, you go to 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, hey, get rid of that dude that won't repent, that's fooling around with his, with his stepmom. Get rid of him. Throw him out of the church. And, and we think about church discipline and we're like, man, that's so unloving. No, it's loving. It's no less loving than the doctor who says, hey, you have cancer. You want me to cut it out? No, just leave it there. Sorry, just leave it there. What? It's going to affect your whole body. Sin in the body affects the whole body. Paul's saying, get rid of it. And why? For repentance sake. Deal with that man. Why? To lead him to repentance. Whole goal was repentance. The whole goal was reconciliation. It was loving. It's just you're going to deal strongly with it. Why? Because sin is like yeast. It contaminates everything it touches. Galatians 5 says this. You don't just have sin in this area. It, it trickles out. It spreads out. And he's saying, utterly obliterate it. Why? Because I'm holy and I demand my people be holy. And I'm not going to have other gods in my face. I'm not going to share you with anyone else. I'm not doing it. And our worship is to be different. Why? Because God is unique. And we worship out of relationship. Last contrast is this. In contrast to the world and the gods of this world, Israel's God is holy and He demands His people be holy. The reason why we're to be holy is because He is holy. And that's what it boils down to. Here's what holiness looks like. And we have a hard time with that because there's nothing about us that is holy. In Hebrews 12... Verse 14, he says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with which, no one will, with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up. He's talking about holiness. I'm not going to deal, we don't tolerate any of it. See, because God does not conform. The, the reason why we struggle so much with holiness is this. We think about conforming to a standard. The challenge is, with that is this. God is the standard. See, God doesn't conform to a standard. He is the standard. And, through, and, and we fall short. And through His Son, He has given us, by grace, the standard. The standard's righteousness. He's given it to us. 
And he's telling Israel, here's the law. Follow the law. Obey the law. Be righteous. Why? Because I'm righteous. And in God's holiness, he, he says, I hate sin. I hate it. And I'm showing you what a, what a my kingdom citizen, I'm showing you what my kingdom citizen looks like. You want to be a citizen of my king? This is how you, write. This is how you live. Citizen of my kingdom, this is how you live. And as sovereign king, he has every right to demand it. But the beauty is this, in Christ, he's done it for us. Christ met the standard for us, and he's given it to us. But, but how do we respond then? We respond by living. We respond by living. We respond by doing exactly what I read in, in the first in the first uh, verse in 1 Peter 2, 9, we, we, we respond by living to proclaim His excellencies. We, we, we live by making much of Him and less than us. We, we live in a way that declares God's greatness and our sufficiency on His greatness. And God's holiness, again, is still the standard. The difference is in Christ, He's done it for us. And we are just as guilty today as Israel was then. And the question becomes, the question becomes, come this. Not why did God deal so dramatically with Israel. The question is this, why has He dealt so graciously with us? I don't understand why He's dealt so graciously with us. And the point of all this, as we saw, is to lead us to Christ. It's to lead us to Christ, who bore the sins of the whole world, who was righteousness for us and has offered it. And the issue, the issue, boil it all down, the issue is this, who do you trust? The issue between the false gods and the one true God of Israel is this, who do you trust? Because if you're, if you're seeking things from false gods, you are telling the one true God, I don't trust you with this. Bottom line. And the question for us is, in whom do we trust? And, and idolatry is a substitution of the Creator for the creation. Romans 1 tells us that. And the point God, that Moses is making is this. Whatever we worship affects the way we live. And God is protecting His people, saying, I'm holy, I have your happiness in mind, I have your holiness in mind, I want to bless you, but this is how you've got to come. And for us today, the only way to come to, to, to God is through Christ Jesus. John 14, 6 says this, no, way, no man comes to the Father but through me. He's the way, the truth, and the life, as Clay saying today. And I would challenge you, if you're here today and, you're, and you, know, you do not know for sure that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, after I pray and dismiss, please come, let's talk. I do not want you to walk out of here and miss the greatest gift that's ever been offered, and that's God Himself through Christ. There is one way, one way for you to measure up and to be fit for heaven, and it's by falling on your face before God and demanding and, and pleading with God that Christ's blood be applied to your life. See, we're unrighteous. Christ was righteous. And the law proved that we were unrighteous. And God said, I'm going to make, I'm going to have my son down a cross for your sins. And then he's going to give you the righteousness that I demand. Romans 1.16 says this. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the, the righteousness of God is revealed, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. It's about righteousness. The righteous, then he goes on, the righteous shall live by faith. Trust. If you've never had Christ's righteousness applied to your life, you will not be fit for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what he's telling Israel here. If you want to be fit for the kingdom, this is it. If you've never repented of your sin, please, if you're even wondering if you have, let's talk. Don't, don't walk out here trusting in false gods. They fail. Satan is trying to use them to draw you away from the one true God. Be devoted to the one true God. Fall upon in faith the one way that we can be made righteous, and that's through Christ.